Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the podcast, The Endurance of Labor Laws. I am your host, Leslie Sullivan, and today is episode 37. And today we're going to take a look at the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Iron Workers. But first of all, I want to give a shout out to some of my listeners. So let me go to my lovely list here. So here we go. A big shout out to Virginia. Love you, Oklahoma, Texas. Love you as well, Pennsylvania. How you doing? Can't wait to come visit you and go see some of your museums in the spring or summer. I would love that. And then New York, you are wonderful. I can't wait to come visit you as well and go visit the Statue of Liberty because I love, 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 love historical monuments and things like that because it's a great testament to our country. So I love that. Secondly, we need to go over some uh, housekeeping here and I wanted to go over Typhoid Mary. I had mentioned Typhoid Mary in the previous podcast in regards to vaccines and things of that nature and it just kind of dawned on me that some people may not have knowledge of Typhoid Mary and they may not understand the historicalness of this. So I'm going to go ahead and read this to you because it is, it is important. and it does um represent part of the history of the United States and it's kind of an interesting history because not only does it deal with someone that was a worker um it deals with infectious disease it deals with the health department it deals with the knowledge of what our ancestors were aware of in terms of disease and how to stop it how to try to prevent it and it also deals with quarantine and it deals with infection rates and also it deals with basically historical data of what our country did to try and prevent the spread of a really bad disease especially when there were no antibiotics the germ theory was not uh, widely known or completely accepted yet that doesn't mean that they were not aware of disease they were they were aware that if you did not wash your hands that was really gross and grotesque to do that but that it was just that phrase cleanliness is close to godliness well there's a reason for that you know and you can go back to biblical times especially in the old testament when the israelites were freed also known as the hebrews they were freed from pharaoh in egypt and you know not only did they have the 10 commandments but they had all these other uh, laws and rules and regulations that was in regards to cleaning of meat uh what should you eat what should you not eat how should you prepare it you know when a woman gives birth you know you know does she need to remain isolated that kind of thing because they were aware of germs back then even you know since the beginning of time it's just they didn't always have a name for it but they knew that you had to be careful about bloodborne and airborne pathogens and an example of this is with leprosy as well so just because there wasn't a specific scientific a definition or term such as germ theory even back in biblical times they were aware of disease because what we forget because we are an advanced society especially within the United States um in terms of understanding disease and things of that nature they still had outbreaks of the plague even back in biblical times like the plague or the black death is not just in Europe even though it did hit Europe really bad i think it was Goodness, there are a couple different outbreaks. For some reason, the 1500s comes to mind. But there, here's the thing: even in Greco-Roman times, the plague had an outbreak, and it was almost always in the spring. 
And that was documented by philosophers. It was documented by Greek physicians at the time, uh, during Roman times. So the, the plague, you know, the Black Death or whatever word you want to use to call it, it happened almost every year, just like the flu happens every year in our winter time, in the fall and winter. Well, the plague happened during the spring and summer. And technically, we still have a people get the plague but we don't have outbreaks of it like it occurred in Europe like we still you can still get the plague you know the black death or whatever it's called um even here in the United States but it's rare it's very rare because we have a very clean and very prosperous society and people wash their hands at least i hope they do and you know it really matters in terms of public health when people really understand what it means to practice public health and safety in regards to food sanitation um you know cleaning of your house washing your hands after you you use the bathroom wash your hands after touching raw meat things like that so even though there wasn't necessarily you know a specific term a medical term to describe certain things even thousands of years ago they were aware of disease and they tried to prevent it as much as possible so let's go ahead and go back in time to the 1800s and let's learn about typhoid mary because this was an actual person it was a woman and typhoid is a real disease it is a real concern we just don't hear about it as much because we have modern advanced healthcare and modern medicine to help handle this so let's go ahead and get started on this one so it says mary mallon m a l l o m uh, she was born september 23rd 1869 she died november 11th 1938 She is commonly known as Typhoid Mary. Was an Irish-born American cook believed to have infected 53 sorry, 53 people with typhoid fever, although I think it was probably way more than that. Those are just some of the confirmed cases. Cuz what you have to remember is that even though they were aware of the disease, not everybody was sure what they were diagnosing because doctors weren't everywhere like they are today. So there were probably hundreds of people that were infected and way more that died in terms because i think they say like 3 or 4 died actually way more died from from this from, how how can i describe this from being exposed to this woman from being exposed to what she had so it said believed to have infected 53 people it was probably hundreds more because it was extremely infectious with typhoid fever three of whom died those are just confirmed there were way more that died and the first person in the united states identified as an asymptomatic carrier of the disease pathogen salmonella typhi so here's the thing she's an asymptomatic carrier so for those people that that for example get covid and they're healthy and they're just a carrier you still need to get the vaccine so you don't spread it to other people that's why that's why even if you're healthy and you never get sick you still need to be vaccinated because you can be a carrier and that's really cruel to infect other people especially when you are aware of it and if you're not aware if you're not aware of it it is still dangerous and still wrong to infect people so kind of grow up be an adult and be kind of considerate of other people it says because she persisted in working as a cook by which she exposed others to the disease she was twice forcibly quarantined by authorities eventually for the final two decades of her life Malin died after a total of nearly 30 years in isolation. So then it says here this is about her early life. It says Mary Malin was born in 1869 in Cookstown, County Tyrone, Ireland. 
Presumably she was born with typhoid fever because her mother was infected during pregnancy. That's another reason why pregnant women they need to be vaccinated for stuff before they get pregnant. And sometimes even when they are pregnant. There's some vaccines pregnant women can get when they're when they're pregnant and there's some vaccines they need to get before they get pregnant. So that's why I was mentioning the other day that if you have a daughter and you're not getting her vaccinated for measles, mumps, rubella, guess what? If she catches rubella while she's pregnant, that could cause her child, it's a very high risk actually, like 90 to 98% chance of her child becoming a down syndrome baby due to something that was completely preventable. Well, here we see it's presumed, okay, that Mary Mallon was born with typhoid fever because her mother was infected during pregnancy. So whatever the mother gets, an active infection can go to the baby. That's not the same as getting a vaccine. A vaccine doesn't give you an active infection. It's giving you immunity. That's why vaccines are safe. It goes on to say at the age of 15, she immigrated from Ireland to the United States. That was very common. She lived with her aunt and uncle for a time and worked as a maid, but eventually became a cook for affluent uh, families. Now here's the thing: cooks were paid really well compared to other types of. Uh, this would, I guess, would be considered blue-collar labor, in a sense. Um, but that's why she became a cook was to make more money. Next, it talks about her career. It says from 1900 to 1907, Mallon worked as a cook in the New York City area for eight families. seven of whom contracted typhoid so very high rate so it's obvious she has it and she's infecting people in 1900 she worked i think it's called mama ronek i'm not sure how to pronounce that new york where within 2 weeks of her employment residents developed typhoid fever in 1901 she moved to manhattan where members of the family for whom she worked developed fevers and diarrhea and the laundress died Mallon then worked for a lawyer and left after seven of eight people in that household became ill. In June to I'm sorry, in June 1904, she was hired by a prosperous lawyer, Henry Gilsey. Within a week, the laundress was infected with typhoid and soon four of the seven servants were ill. No members of Gilsey's family were infected because they resided separately and the servants lived in their own house. That's a blessing right there. That probably saved their lives. The investigator Dr. R. L. Wilson concluded that the laundress had caused the outbreak, but he failed to prove it. So it's one of those things that modern medicine they they can know something, but they still have to prove it. So he was on the right track. He was on the right track. So this laundress may have caused other people to get typhoid, but she was infected by typhoid Mary because it's very uh, contagious and infectious. It says immediately after the outbreak began, Malin left and moved to uh Tuxedo Park, uh Tuxedo Park. I wonder because she's moving so much if she knows that she's the one that's causing these problems. Like a light bulb should be coming on that everywhere she goes it typhoid breaks out. Like if you're looking for the common denominator and it's you, guess what? You're the problem. Goes on to say Malin left and moved to Tuxedo Park where she was hired by George Kessler. Two weeks later, the laundress in his household was infected and taken to St. Joseph's Regional Medical Center, where her case of typhoid was the first in a long time. So here's what that means: typhoid was around, but it hadn't been in this area for a long time. So that tells us that the doctors and the medical community were aware of typhoid, 
and they were tracking it already. So they knew that something was going on because these pockets of typhoid fever are popping up where they hadn't been for a long time. Goes on to say in August 1906, Mallon took a position in Oyster Bay on Long Island with the family of a wealthy New York banker, Charles Henry Warren. Mallon went along with the Warrens when they rented a house in Oyster Bay for the summer of 1906. On August 27th to September 3rd, six of the 11 people in the family came down with typhoid fever. The disease at that time was unusual in Oyster Bay, according to three medical doctors who practiced there. So now they're on the alert. So here's the thing, even though doctors back then they had less technology, less information than we have now, whatever they had at that time was considered modern for their day and age. So they were smart. They were aware of this disease. They were tracking it, so they were noticing something going on. It goes on to say the landlord, understanding that it would be impossible to rent a house with the reputation of typhoid, hired several independent experts to find the source of infection. Now that is the smartest landlord I have ever heard of. Because this landlord is acknowledging there's a problem and he wants to know why is this happening. So he understands disease more than he realizes. It goes on to say that took water samples from pipes, faucets, toilets and the cesspool, all of which were negative for typhoid. In late uh, 1906, Malin was hired by Walter Bowen, whose family lived in Park Avenue. Their maid got sick on January 23, 1907, and soon Charles Warren's only daughter got typhoid and died. This case helped to identify Malin as the source of the infections. George Soper, an investigator hired by Warren after the outbreak in Oyster Bay, had been trying to determine the cause of typhoid outbreaks in well-to-do families. when it was known that the disease typically struck in unsanitary environments he discovered that a female irish cook who fit the physical description he had been given was involved in all of the outbreaks he was unable to locate her because she generally left after an outbreak began that tells me she knew she was the problem she knew without giving a forwarding address so she didn't want to be found Soper then learned of an active outbreak in a penthouse on Park Avenue and discovered Malin was the cook Two of the household servants were hospitalized and the daughter of the family died of typhoid. That's very sad. So here's the thing. This cook, she knows she's a problem. She doesn't care. She wants the money. She wants to make a good living, but she she knows that she's infectious and this little girl died because of this servant's greed. That's what that is. Her ignorance and her greed killed somebody else. Killed a little girl. Soper first met Malin in the kitchen of the Bowens and accused her of spreading the disease. Though Soper himself recollected his behavior as diplomatic as possible, he infuriated Malin and he and she threatened him with a carving fork. When Malin refused to give samples, Soper decided to compile a 5-year history of her employment. So he's going to figure out what's been going on. He found that of the 8 families that had hired Malin as a cook, members of 7 claimed to have contracted typhoid fever. Then Soper found out where Malin's boyfriend boyfriend lived and arranged a new meeting there. He took Dr. Raymond uh, Hubler in an attempt to persuade Mary to give them samples of urine and stool for analysis. I bet she's not going to like that at all. Malin again refused to cooperate, believing that typhoid was everywhere and that the outbreaks had happened because of contaminated food and water. So she's blaming other things except herself, even though she knows. Otherwise, she wouldn't keep moving. 
At that time, the concept of healthy carriers was unknown even to healthcare workers, but they're slowly discovering this. So even though it was unknown, they have an inkling. It's so interesting like it's unknown, but they know it if that makes sense. Like they're they're figuring things out and it's you know, modern medicine at that time is becoming more modern and they're seeing that the more they investigate the, uh, this disease. It says here Soper published his findings on June 15, 1907 in the Journal of the American Medical Association. He wrote, "It was found that the family changed cooks on August 4th. This was about 3 weeks before the typhoid epidemic broke out. The new cook, Malin, remained in the family only a short time and left about 3 weeks after the outbreak occurred." Malin was described as an Irish woman about 40 years of age, tall, heavy, single. She seemed to be in perfect health. So what he's noticing here is that she's healthy, but yet she's a carrier. So that's what he's he's noting here and he's letting the medical community know his findings. Basically, it's not some blatantly sick person walking around hacking on everybody. It's a healthy person that's causing this problem. So they're learning more about germ theory as we go along here. The next section is about her first quarantine. Soper notified the New York City Health Department, whose investigators realized that Malin was a typhoid carrier. Under sections 1169 and 1170 of the Greater New York Charter, Malin was arrested as a public health threat. They had every right to do that because she was killing people. She was forced into an ambulance by five policemen and Dr. Josephine Baker, who at some point had to sit on Malin to restrain her. Malin was transported to the Willard Parker Hospital where she was restrained and forced to give samples. For 4 days, she was not allowed to get up and use the bathroom on her own because at that time she was still refusing or trying to refuse to give bathroom samples, which is what they needed to see if the bacterium was in her stool or in her urine because they knew that if she was infected it would be there. The massive numbers of typhoid bacteria that were discovered in her stool samples indicated that the infection center was in her gallbladder. Under questioning, Malin admitted that she almost never washed her hands. That is unbelievably disgusting and gross. She knew better. They knew to wash their hands. Even though germ theory was not really completely understood, it was known that you're supposed to wash your hands after using the bathroom. So there's really no excuse. This was not unusual at the time. The germ theory of disease was still not fully accepted. So it it was not unusual how do I word this? Even though she never really washed her hands or almost never washed her hands, it was still known that you're supposed to wash your hands. And we know this because there are accounts in ancient Rome where for example, if you were in the emperor's house or the caesar's house or whatever, and you had just gone to the bathroom for example you would not eat with that hand you would eat with your other hand so that was just common practice hundreds if not thousands of years earlier before this lady contracted this disease and was not washing her hands so there were there was supposed to be sanitary practices in the kitchen and after using the bathroom but ignorance is not bliss it can actually kill people So even though it was not unusual for people to not wash their hands, they knew better. They knew better. They just did. Like you just have to really know your history in terms of 
the practices and things like that because even though they did not know the word germ they didn't understand germ theory it was not common knowledge to understand disease they still knew when something was unclean and when something was clean for example they know when laundry is dirty and soiled and then they know when laundry has been cleaned it's been refreshed as they say And also they did know about germs. They just didn't know what to call it because they would dry their sheets and their clothes in the sun. Because sunlight kills germs. It's a natural disinfectant. So they did know. They did have knowledge of this. It's just sometimes people refuse to do what's right. Goes on to say on March 19th, 1907, Malland was sentenced to quarantine on North Brother Island. While quarantined, she gave stool and urine samples 3 times per week. Authorities suggested removing her gallbladder but she refused because she did not believe she carried the disease. At the time, gallbladder removal was dangerous, that's true, and people had died from the procedure. That is true. If any kind of surgery back then was considered dangerous. So it's like if you didn't have to have surgery, people didn't want to have it unless it was to save your life. Malin was also unwilling to stop working as a cook. That was her problem. a job that earned her more money than any other so greed having no home of her own she was always on the verge of poverty she could have done the right thing though she didn't have to be in poverty she could have found another job she could have founded her own company she could have done other things but she was stubborn hence irish she was stubborn and unwilling to accept the facts even though she kept moving and she knew she was causing the outbreak i don't believe she didn't know i just don't believe that After the publication of Soper's article in the Journal of the American Medical Association, Malin attracted extensive media attention and received the nickname Typhoid Mary. I'm not surprised. Later in a textbook that defined Typhoid Mary, she would, she again was called Typhoid Mary. Soper visited Malin in quarantine, telling her he would write a book and give her part of the royalties. She angrily rejected his proposal and locked herself in the bathroom until he left. What an idiot, what a moron. She totally should have taken the royalties cuz then she could have lived like a queen. And then she would have never had to work. See, that's how dumb she is. That's how stupid she was. You know, who cares what someone calls you? If you can make a lot of money and own your own penthouse, who cares? But she was ignorant, stupid, arrogant, pompous, just wanted greed. She she was money driven, but she she was so ignorant on so many things. She didn't realize it doesn't matter what someone calls you. If you can make a lot of money off of that, You can have your own mansion. She hated the nickname and wrote in a lawyer or wrote in a letter to her lawyer. I wonder how the said Dr. William H. Park would like to be insulted and put in the journal and call him or or his wife Typhoid William Park. <laughs> I'd be like, go ahead, give me the money. I don't care. <laughs> That's how dumb she was. Okay, moving on. Not all medical experts supported the decision to forcibly quarantine Malin. For example, Milton J. Rosenuel, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, and Charles V. Chapin both argued that she just had to be taught to carefully treat her condition and ensure that she would not transmit the typhoid to others. What morons! Okay, these people are so stupid. They were telling her. They were. They arrested her. They told her you have this very infectious disease. We've noticed over the last five years of your employment history, you have infected a lot of people. You have this disease, you can no longer work as a cook. We'll help you find another job, we'll help you find a place to live. But here's the thing, she refused. She didn't want to listen to anybody. 
She didn't care about other people. She only cared about herself. And that's the thing. When you only care about yourself, sometimes that can kill other people. It's very selfish and very horrible. Both considered isolation to be an unnecessary, overly strict punishment. B.S. Excuse me. Those two people are stupid. Isolation, especially with an extremely infectious disease, is sometimes the only way to handle it. Especially if the infected person refuses to do what is right. Because they gave her every opportunity. They really did. It says here, Malin suffered from a nervous breakdown after her arrest and forcible transportation to the, to the hospital. I think she brought that on herself. I mean, if you just do what they say and you realize, hey, you're a carrier of something, just find a way to have a better life. But don't go killing people with the, the infection that you have. In 1909, she tried to sue the New York Health Department, but her complaint was denied. I agree with that. And the case closed by the New York Supreme Court. I completely agree with that. It's dumb. In a letter to her lawyer, she complained that she was treated like a guinea pig. I even wonder if she knew what that word meant. She was obliged to give samples of analysis three times a week, but for six months was not allowed to visit an eye doctor, even though her eyelid was paralyzed and she had to bandage it at night. Her medical treatment was hectic. She was given urotropin and three-month courses for a year, uh, threatening to destroy her kidneys. That was changed to Burgist, and I think this is hexamethylenamin, I'm not sure how to pronounce that, in increasing doses. She was first told that she had thi- uh, typhoid in her intestinal tract, then in her bowel muscles, then in her gallbladder. Well, guess what? It was probably everywhere. <laughs> it was probably everywhere in her body because guess what? If she is a carrier, which she was, that's, it's in her blood as well. Because what we know about uh, bacteria and viruses, it, they travel all throughout the body. They may particularly like one organ or one section of the body, but... It is all throughout her entire system because it's traveling on the superhighway of her arteries and veins and her blood and her blood supply. So it's not just in the urine or in, or in her bowels. It's everywhere. But they may not have realized that. Malin herself never believed that she was a carrier, hence her stupidity and her ignorance. With the help of a friend, she sent several samples to an independent New York laboratory. I'm, oh, yeah, with the help of a friend. They pro- oh, this is interesting. All came back negative for typhoid. Gee, with the help of a friend. Hmm, I bet they weren't her samples. See, she's a liar. On North Brother Island, almost a quarter of her analysis from March 1907 through, March, through June 1909 were also negative. I wonder if she tampered with them. After two years and 11 months of Malin's quarantine, Eugene H. Porter and the New York State Commissioner of Health decided that disease carriers should no longer be kept in isolation and that Malin could be freed if she, agreed, if she agreed to stop working as a cook and take reasonable steps to avoid transmitting typhoid to others. Good luck. She's ignorant and she doesn't care. She doesn't care about other people. On February 19, 1910, Malin said she was prepared to change her occupation to have a cook and would give assurance by affidavit, I wouldn't believe it, she's a liar, that she would, upon her release, take such hygienic precautions as would protect those with whom she came in contact with from infection. Yeah, right. She was released from quarantine and returned to the mainland. She basically was just telling them what they wanted to hear. What a liar. What a liar. Okay, so the next section is released in second quarantine, years 1915 to 1938. 
Upon her release, Malin was given a job as a laundress, which paid less than cooking, okay? $20 per month instead of 50. Meanwhile, she had not partaken of those royalties from that book, so she didn't have to be poor. She's so she's so stupid she chose poverty. How dumb is that? At some point, she wounded her arm and the wound became infected, meaning that she could not work at all for 6 months. After several unsuccessful years, she started cooking again. Why am I not surprised? She used fake surnames like Brishoff or Brown. She's a liar and took jobs as a cook against the explicit instructions of health authorities. Okay? So she's still defiant. She's still defiant. No agencies that hired servants for upscale families would offer her employment. So for the next 5 years, she moved to the mass sector. So she knows she's not hireable. She knows she's infectious, but she doesn't care. She worked in a number of kitchens and restaurants, hotels, and spa centers. Almost everywhere she worked, there were outbreaks of typhoid. She's still killing people, and she doesn't care. She's a little murderous. However, she changed jobs frequently, and Soper was unable to find her. So again, she knows what she's doing, and she's hiding, and she doesn't care. She doesn't value human life except her own. In 1915, Malin started working at Sloan Hospital for Women in New York City. Here we go. Soon, 25 people were infected and two died. I bet there were more than that. The head obstetrician, which means like OB/GYN, Dr. Edward B. Craigen, called Soper and asked him to help in the investigation. Soper identified Malin from the servant's verbal descriptions and also by her handwriting. Malin again fled. Because she knows what she's doing is wrong, but the police were able to find and arrest her when she took food to a friend on Long Island. Malin was returned to quarantine, which she deserved, on North Brother Island on March 27, 1915. Little is known about her life during the second quarantine. She remained on North Brother for more than 23 years. I don't feel sorry for her; she deserved it. And the authorities gave her a private one-story cottage. They're taking really good care of her, considering that she was defiant and she killed a lot of people and infected a lot of a lot of people. As of 1918, she was allowed to take day trips to the mainland. I'm surprised. I wouldn't have granted her that. In 1925, Dr. Alexandra Plavska came to the island for an internship. She organized a laboratory on the second floor of the chapel and offered Malin a job as a technician. I wouldn't have done that. Is she? cleaning and washing her hands after she takes a dump. I mean, really, you can't trust this person. So why would you have them work in a sanitary condition? It's it's ridiculous. She's not a sanitary person. She refuses to be sanitary. Malin washed bottles. I wouldn't use them. It did recordings and prepared glasses for pathologists. I'm one of those pathologists realized they were probably contaminated and gross and sick. So it says here the media's view. After Malin was sent into her final quarantine, the newspapers changed their opinion on her case. The media is very fickle. The articles at first talked about how Dr. Josephine Baker claimed Malin attacked her and the other doctors with forks and came at them fighting and swearing. I wouldn't be surprised by that. She was defiant. Later on, the press articles shifted the blame from fully her fault to the opposite stance. They just wanted to sell newspapers. The belief that she didn't know she was carrying anything, and instead it's the germs that she has no control over to be at blame. <laughs> What a line! Tell that to the people that lost their daughter. The articles also claim 
that Malin was barred from using the telephone to contact anybody except the surgeons treating her and her guard. Well, I'm not surprised by that because she doesn't wash her hands. Wash your hands. What started as a way to make the public health department and legal system look good good through the media was ultimately a place for people to sympathize with the events Malin supposedly encountered. You know what? She killed people. Sorry, I don't have sympathy for people that willingly infect other people and they refuse to to take responsibility. Sorry, I just don't have sympathy for that because human life is more important than public opinion. Public health officials claim the opposite, which I agree with them, that she was treated to to their best ability but in return refused to comply with the request of of the health officials. So here's the thing, what are the health officials supposed to do when someone is actively infect uh, actively infectious with something that can kill people? and this person is defiant won't listen what are they supposed to do because this person is a threat to pretty much all of society and they refuse to change this defiant person is blaming everybody else except themselves well the public health department and also the police and the courts they have every right to quarantine people like that permanently because they are a threat to society You know, it's one thing if someone is made aware that they are extremely infectious and they change their ways, they change their occupation, they do everything they can to not infect other people. That to me shows someone that has empathy and sympathy and has character and is of good moral character. This Malin woman, she had no sympathy for others. It was all about her. She basically played the me 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 note on the piano all the time. She didn't care about other people. She lacked empathy. She lacked sympathy. It was all about her. And because of her behavior problem, people died, and people were made infectious by her. So then it talks about her death. Malin spent the rest of her life in quarantine at Riverside Hospital on North Brother Island. Malin was quite active until suffering a stroke in 1932. Afterwards, she was confined to the hospital. She never completely recovered, and half of her body remained paralyzed. On November 11th, 1938, she died of pneumonia at age 69. Malin's body was cremated and her ashes were buried at St. Raymond's uh, Cemetery in the Bronx. Nine people attended the funeral. So then it goes on to talk about um I guess ethics and lessons learned and things like that. So but my point is this. Typhoid Mary was a real person. And typhoid fever is a real disease. A typhoid is real. And you know what's interesting is that even the ignorant know that disease is real. And even ignorant people know, well let me put it this way. Let's say for example, Mary Mallon had been working in a kitchen and then a new person shows up to start working and all of a sudden people start getting sick. And then she gets sick with it. You know, let's put the shoe on the opposite foot. If she became infectious, excuse me, and almost died from typhoid fever and yet she noticed that it all started when this other worker showed up, I guarantee you she would have pointed the finger at the person that brought the disease through the front door. But she she would never take accountability. She would never take responsibility for her actions. And that was the problem. So, but anyway, that's some housekeeping with that. So that was a real person. It was a real situation. The public health officials did what they could to help her. 
and they gave her the opportunity to be a part of society but she refused to acknowledge the problem so they had to quarantine her because she literally was killing people because she would not wash her hands after going to the bathroom she would not practice sanitary protocols at all which is sick and disgusting like i don't mean to be gross but how would you like it if you had someone that worked for you you know whether you you know have a cook in your house or maybe you know you you, have, you own a restaurant and you have a cook that refuses to wash their hands after they go to the bathroom whether they go number 1 or number 2 that's disgusting see that's the thing when someone is defiant and they refuse to practice the laws of the land and honor the laws of the land that's a criminal That's a very defiant individual that doesn't value human life. She didn't care that children were dying. She didn't care that that newborn babies were dying. She didn't care that mothers were dying. Like like that obstetrician guy, you know, he's working at a women's center, meaning a hospital for women. They're giving birth. You know, this woman who's a cook, she knew she wasn't supposed to be a cook. She was infecting these women that had just given birth. talk about cold and cruel like i'm sure if people are listening to this you know i'm sure they're going to think well lesley you're just being too harsh and i just want to raise my eyebrows and say really really how many people have to die before the person that's at fault takes responsibility for their actions if you are infectious you are infectious take the proper precautions and in regards to covid-19 get the vaccine at least 95% of the population if not 98% of the population of the United States should be able to get the vaccine it's the very few those that can't get the vaccine that shouldn't get it for health reasons but if you are a healthy person and you refuse to get the vaccine as far as i'm concerned you could be a carrier you could be a typhoid mary that's why i don't like being around people that are defiant against modern medicine Because what I find interesting is that you know what they're defiant against modern medicine until they get sick with something. Then it's oh I need help I'm sick help me help me. I just want to say really now you believe in modern medicine? I I just have to pause for a moment and and just like take it all in. Because here's the thing, I have no doubt we have a lot of quote unquote typhoid marys walking around the United States right now because they refuse to get the vaccine. Well, let me ask people this, for people that are against the COVID-19 vaccine. Let's say um you and your husband get vaccinated but your kids can't get vaccinated just yet. Let's just make up a scenario here. And let's say you you have friends that are healthy and they refuse to get the vaccine and they're carriers. What if they infected all your kids and you lost all five of your children because of someone came into your house they 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 knew they were a carrier but because they're healthy quote unquote healthy they didn't really care to do the right thing to get a vaccine and let's say you lose all your children So now instead of having a wonderful family now you've got tombstones That's what it comes down to it's life and death when you're dealing with disease disease is disease It doesn't know your name, it doesn't know your race, it doesn't know your income status, it it doesn't know what your occupation is, it doesn't know your hopes and dreams. It's just infectious disease. It really is that simple. But what also is really simple is do the right thing. Get vaccinated for anything and everything. Make sure that you 
are healthy and that you are not a carrier. Now we'll say this, I'm not saying any of this to be mean to people and I'm not giving anyone permission to be mean to people that refuse to get the vaccine. Cuz that's their right technically if they don't want to get the vaccine. I'm just saying that from a personal point of view, I don't really associate with people that refuse to believe in modern medicine. And if they don't want to get the vaccine, that's fine, but they're never coming into my house. They're never going to be at my potluck. They're never going to be at my Christmas dinners. They're never going to be at my Easter dinners. They're never going to be at my Thanksgiving dinners. I will limit contact with them because they could be a carrier. Vaccines are basic. Meaning it's it's not complicated. Just get the vaccine. If you value human life, get the shot. Unless for, you know, medical reasons, you cannot. But that is very few and far between. Very few and far between. But anyway, that's the housekeeping little message I wanted to give you. But for this uh, podcast episode, we're going to be talking about the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Iron Workers. But before we start, let me get a drink of water, and I will be right back. Hold on. Okay. I am back. So let's go ahead and get started. This is the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental, and Reinforcing Iron Workers. So it was founded February 4th, 1896. They are headquartered in Washington, DC. They have locations in the United States and Canada. As of 2014, they have 123,906 members. The key people here, it says Eric Dean is the general uh, president. Excuse me. And Ron Pixa is the general secretary, Kenneth Bill Dean is the general treasurer, Walter W Wise is the general president emeritus, whatever that word means, and then Joseph J Hunt is the general president emeritus. I don't know what that word means. It must be a a title of some sort. They have affiliations with the AFL, CIO, CLC, Impact, and NAMTU. So let's go ahead and get started on this puppy. It says the International Association of Bridge, Structural, Ornamental and Reinforcing Iron Workers is a union in the United States and Canada which represents trains and and protects primarily construction workers as well as shipbuilding and metal fabrication employees. The union was formed on February 4, 1896 at a meeting in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with 16 delegates from the local unions in Boston, Massachusetts, Buffalo, New York, Chicago, Illinois, Cleveland, Ohio, New York City, New York, Detroit, Michigan, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and Pittsburgh. Those locals and others established later often protected their own autonomy jealously, rejecting at least one national contract with the American Bridge Company because it would have reduced their power. The internal divisions also led the union, which had affiliated with the American Federation of Labor shortly after its formation, to disaffiliate in 1901. only to reaffiliate re- 2 years later it was one of the charter members of the AFL's building trades department which was created in 1908 a little history of iron work it says iron work is a skilled craft that dates back to the late 19th century and is a result of the rapid rise in the use of modern steel in iron bridges and skyscrapers it was and is also an exceptionally dangerous job i agree with that it truly is Hundreds of iron workers fell to their death every year in the late years of the 19th century. As one saying among iron workers of the day put it, 
were killed, but we seldom ever die. Well, that's really a dumb thing to say. I think that's just more grandstanding. Um, battles with employers is the next section. It says a number of employers tried to destroy the craft unions that made up the AFL in the first decade of the 20th century by insisting on maintaining an open shop. An example, hiring without reference to union membership. For craft unions such as the iron workers who maintained union wages and working conditions by controlling the supply of labor, the open shop meant that the employer was free to set any wage standards it chose and to discriminate against union members in hiring. Now here's the thing, the employer has every right to do that because the employer can decide who they want to hire and who they want to fire. But unfortunately, labor unions they like to tell the they they like to try and tell the employer what to do. Well, labor unions are not in charge of the company. They don't own the company, they didn't found it, they don't pay the bills. They just want to make a lot of money and tell the employer what to do. That's a big reason why I don't like labor unions. You know, labor unions didn't come first. The employer came first. The job came first. So really be respectful of who is employing you. So it says here the iron workers had successfully repelled the open shop demands of American Bridge Company, an arm of the United States Steel Corporation in 1903. In 1905, after the union's collective bargaining agreement with Ambridge had expired, Ambridge and the other members of the National Erectors Association began refusing to hire union members and hired labor spies to infiltrate the union. When the iron workers struck in response, the employers obtained in injunctions and local ordinances that barred picketing or limited it to an ineffective display. Open shop demands still exist today. Non-union iron working companies are in competition to take over union jobs, but the non-union hourly wage is based on the union rate. says here this next section is regarding the Los Angeles Times bombing between the years of 1908 and 1911 87 to 105 bombings took place at work sites including some bombs set up by union members the most famous one and the only one to cause any loss of life killed 20 employees of the Los Angeles Times on October 1, 1910 Times publisher Harrison Gray Otis was a staunch opponent of labor unions and the main supporter for the open shop movement in Los Angeles authorities arrested James B McNamara and Ordy McManagall in Detroit carrying dynamite in a suitcase both men were in positions of importance in the in the iron workers union McManagall confessed to a number of dynamite bombings and named the secretary treasurer of the union John J McNamara as the man who directed the bombings James and Jim McNamara were brothers And John gave Jim John gave James a thousand dollars per month from the union's treasury to finance the bombings. A thousand dollars per month back then was a lot of money, and just think about how much money that union had if they can afford to allot this guy a thousand dollars per month. The union hired famed attorney Clarence Darrow to defend the McNamaras. Darrow, however, concluded that the brothers faced a strong faced a strong chance of receiving the death penalty for the crime which they should because they killed people. Darrow therefore made a clumsy attempt in broad daylight in broad daylight in downtown Los Angeles to bribe one of the jurors. As it turned out, it was a trap and Darrow was arrested. Now more desperate than ever, he persuaded the McNamaras to plead guilty on the basis of an unwritten plea bargain that would have freed John Once they pleaded guilty, however, the authorities denied that they had any deal at all. 
McNamara served nearly 10 years while his brother spent his remaining years in prison. I'm surprised they didn't get the death penalty because it was California out where this happened. And California had had a really good death penalty back then. I don't know if they had the electric chair or if they hung people or if they lined them up against the wall. I don't remember, but they did not have lethal injection. Their guilty pleas effectively defeated the campaign of uh, Job Harriman, then running for mayor of Los Angeles as a socialist, and nearly destroyed Darrow's career and reputation. The federal government then indicted dozens of other iron worker officers for conspiring to transport dynamite as part of this campaign. That's very sick that they would use dynamite. That's really disturbing. The Internationals, current president Frank M. Ryan and one of its future presidents, Paul uh, Patty Morin, were convicted along with several other defendants on December 31, 1912, after a trial in which Herbert Hawken, the International Secretary Treasurer, testified against them. John J. McNamara was returned Uh, oh, sorry, John J. McNamara later returned to the Union after his release from state prison. He was expelled from the Union in 1928, however, for submitting false audit reports on behalf of his local union. Why am I not surprised? In 2006, journalist Robert Fitch described the Iron Workers Union bombings as perhaps the largest domestic terrorism campaign in American history. I would agree with that. And further notes the Los Angeles Times bombing and subsequent trials as marked a precipitous decline in labor union power in the Los Angeles area. The next section is says battles with AFL employers and the IWW. The iron workers soon found themselves at war with AFL and in particular the United Brotherhood of Carpenters and Joiners of America. The carpenters claimed that pile driving work, which was done primarily by iron workers in many areas, belonged to them. and convinced the building trades department to go along with them when the iron workers refused to relinquish this work the AFL suspended it from membership in 1917 other unions such as the lathers then claimed that work that ha- that had historically been done by iron workers belonged to them instead unable to call on the support of other AFL unions in its fights with employers the iron workers relented the following year and ceded pile driving work with the exception of work related to bridge building to the carpenters these fissures contributed to an extent to the failure of the iron workers new york city strike called in 1921 to resist the american plan the open shop movement that reversed much of the labor movement's gains particularly in construction of the previous decade when the strike failed the union sued the employers also without success i'm not surprised the union survived but in a much weaker state. The union also fought the industrial workers of the world, which had won leadership in a number of its west coast locals in the era after World War 1. International President Morin expelled some disobedient locals and sued others to regain their locals' property. By 1928, the rebellion was over. The next section is about the Great Depression and the New Deal. The union lost roughly half of its members in the early 1930s. While the passage of the Davis-Bacon Act required payment of the prevailing wage on federal construction projects, the desperate shortage of work allowed some employers to force their employees to pay kickbacks to them to hold on to their jobs. A number of union members hopped freight cars to go in search of work. At the same time, the union's old enemy, the Carpenters Union, resumed its jurisdictional war with it. 
Conditions improved somewhat with the advent of the New Deal and the Roosevelt administration's creation of the Works Progress Administration, a public works project that employed thousands of iron workers and other construction workers. The union was also spurred to organize, particularly in the inside fabricating shops, by the threat of competition from the newly created Congress of Industrial Organizations. The union's membership grew slowly, reaching 40,000 by 1940. This next section is World War II, the post-war boom and change. The union grew even more rapidly during World War II and the years afterward, reaching 100,000 members in by 1948, when John H. Lyons succeeded Morin as president of the union. His son, John H. Lyons Jr., succeeded him in 1961. That concerns me because of nepotism. The Taft-Hartley Act passed in 1947, limited construction unions' rights to picket work sites at which non-union contractors were working by barring secondary boycotts. Even with those restrictions, however, the iron workers continued to grow in the expansive economy of the 1950s. The union, like most other United States construction unions, had remained nearly all white for most of its history. That began to change in the early 1960s. as the American civil rights movement began to change employment discrimination in the north then picked up then picked up steam in the 1970s as the federal government began using the civil rights act of 1964 to knock down some of the barriers to african american workers entry into the industry some local unions of the iron workers fought fought integration and affirmative action tenaciously but usually unsuccessfully. I'm not surprised by that cuz sometimes you 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 can't fight change in some ways. The union also found itself challenged by a change in the business climate in the 1970s as non-union contractors invaded markets that had been solidly union for years with the support of the business round table made up of the heads of General Motors, General Electric, Exxon, US Steel, DuPont and others. The round table also attempted to weaken the Davis-Bacon Act and other legislation that protected construction workers. The iron workers and other building trades caught off guard and used to organizing from the top down lost large amounts of work to non-union contractors in the decades that followed. The union's international president Jake West pleaded guilty in 2002 to improper use of pension funds and making a false statement on a union report filed with the United States Department of Labor. That is incredibly stupid and dumb. Joseph Hunt succeeded him. A number of lower-level officers and the union's accounting firm likewise pleaded guilty to related embezzlement and disclosure charges. What idiots. Fitch described West's guilty plea as part of a pattern of corruption in the iron workers as he was one of nine top officials investigated or indicted for crimes between 1999 and 2002. According to the union's Department of Labor records since 2005, the union has reported several types of membership classifications with the majority el- eligible to vote in the union and overall average for the period 12% ineligible to vote throughout the period journeymen have been the largest category period average of 56% followed by lifetime honorary members which is about 16% followed by apprentices and shopmen with an average of 9% each 
As of 2014, the number of members in each of these categories are about 21,000 lifetime honorary member uh, members. I don't know what that means. Like they just continue to be a part of it as some type of honor. I don't understand why you would do that in a labor union, but I think that's really stupid. Um then it goes on to list all the different local unions, which is quite a few in the United States. Wow. And we have a couple in Oklahoma. So I'm not surprised by that. We have one in Oklahoma City and one in Tulsa. New York has quite a few. That doesn't surprise me. But anyway, that is it for that um labor union there. So it does have corruption. It does have some problems. Um it doesn't say if it donates to any uh, political parties. I would be interested to see that. Um and well, let me check out their website. So hold on just a moment. Okay, so I've been taking a look at their website and it looks like it hasn't been updated since 2017. So it's outdated here. Um they list some of their projects, but they're old, so they don't really list anything that is new or relevant. I'm not seeing anything in regards to that. Um the president's message is is an old one. Um so it's they're they're not updating their website. Um they give a good history. I'll read that to you. It says who we are. It says in the late 1800s or sorry 1880s, steel had virtually replaced wood and stone as the primary load-carrying material in the erection of bridges and buildings. The abrupt change in structural materials brought about a demand for a new type of worker bridgemen and architectural iron workers. Iron workers became known as cowboys in the sky. As these daring young independent men aged and became husbands and providers, their thoughts turned to providing for their families during sickness, injury and death, and the realization by joining together their voices became stronger, unified and heard. Thus the International Association of Bridge and Structural Iron Workers of America was established on February 4th, 1896 by 16 delegates who attended our founding convention in Pittsburgh and that's all it says. Um I'd never heard of them called Cowboys in the Sky. Um but that is very interesting. So I just wish that they would update stuff so that way we kind of know what what's going on now in regards to what what they're doing, what they're expecting and Are they involved in politics because that would concern me as well. Let me look at the news part of this. Oh, okay. Oh, I guess this part's updated. It says keep up to date with strike picket and protest news from Erie, Pennsylvania. So this is as of December 14th, 2021. So let's take a look at this one. Hold on just a moment. Okay, so what I gather from this article and I'm not going to read the whole thing. Um I guess there's this company up north that um the grandson took over and since then it hasn't been that great of a place to work. And um some of this stuff I understand why the workers are mad because it brought back memories of when I worked in retail. So these are iron workers basically. And um they they had a good working environment until the grandson took over the company in 2020. And so What happened was upper management um basically became really mean to these people. And so for example, there was one guy that he actually contracted COVID and he needed um actually his kid and him got COVID and the employer 
would not allow him to leave until the end of the day to go get a covid test so they know that this guy is infectious and they won't let him go home they won't let him go immediately and get a covid test that's what he is saying and then another guy that works for this company um says that his parents died out in california and both of them or something and so he he had to go out there and go to a funeral and this employer that is now being run by this grandson and these higher ups that are supposedly not very nice to people they said well you need to prove that you're at a funeral so you need to bring us the obituary in the newspaper which is kind of shocking and then um the employer also said we want to make sure that these are actually your parents that you say that died so he had to provide a birth certificate which is ridiculous and what this reminded me of is this reminded me of when i worked in retail um this is way pre covid but um back when i worked in retail it was pretty harsh just like that like they did not want to honor your sick leave they did not you know they did everything they could to make you feel guilty for being sick and for not being able to come to work like at that time retailers they wanted you to come to work even if you were sick even if you were infecting people like it didn't matter if you had a stomach bug a cold bronchitis pneumonia the flu like numbers were more important than human life at that time And so I don't know if all this is proven or not about how this employer is acting but um some of the picketers have since they they called them scabs because they went back to work and then some have just gone on to other jobs which is what I think they should do. I think that if your employer is not acting right then why do you still want to work there? What the workers are saying um th- these union people that are striking what they're saying is that oh we're going to win we're going to win this and we have a right to fight and and that's that's true they do and um they excuse me they do have the right to fight it but i look at it this way why not just work for somebody else where you don't have to deal with that if the grandson that has taken over the company is being that horrible to people and he's hired some cronies or whatever to uh be hostile to employees i wouldn't want to work there there at all i would just want to go to a different place of employment and just make more money and you might also want to move i mean but if i had to guess if a union person is hearing this podcast they're probably going to say well lesley we shouldn't have to change we shouldn't have to move sometimes you need to sometimes you need to do what's best for you and sometimes butting your head up against the wall continuously month after month week after week day after day is not the best thing to do If it was me and someone was treating me like that and I did get treated like that at a previous place of employment it was horrible I found a job elsewhere. And guess what? Now I make more money and I have a better work environment. I I don't I'm not treated like a cow anymore. I'm not treated, you know, lower than dirt. In some respects cows are treated better than people in regards to employers that act like this. Like for example, dairy cows. Those those cows are pampered why? Because they produce milk. So just know that you can always have a better life and sometimes even if you are in a union don't be afraid to go elsewhere to get a job get a better job try out the private sector like be non-union see cuz here's the thing you have to it's kind of all those things like you fight fire with fire sometimes if that makes sense and that's just an analogy i don't mean that literally But it's kind of those things that well you know if your employer if this owner the grandson of this guy that died you know he's looking at it from a private sector point of view. So if you are an iron worker and you're really good at your job, why don't you make your own company? 
why don't you hire all the people that are on the picket line and pay them what they should be paid and give them paid sick leave you know make it so that they don't have to prove with a death certificate or a birth certificate or or an obituary that someone was at a funeral you know think outside the box i don't always like that phrase but you know sometimes these unions they are so narrow minded that that they're missing the point the point is you're working for someone where you you don't see eye to eye well here's the thing if you don't see eye to eye then it's probably time to leave you know if you have 28 picketers left which i think that was the last count on this and plus they're picketing in front of this guy's house in front of this owner's house that is dumb that's harassment like i'm not impressed with that at all like i like i don't mind people picketing but you don't do that out in front of someone's home that's wrong that's harassment and if it was me i would call the police and have you arrested and i would press charges so i don't have sympathy for you if you're picketing out in front of someone's home because that's someone's home and guess what when you are harassing somebody that's not going to make them go oh gosh i should pay them more money I should be nicer to them. Like if if you're being mean to someone like that and you're trying to convince them that your way is right, you're not going to do it by being mean to them. Like it it it's you know, your retaliation doesn't prove anything except that your organization is wrong and it's not doing things correctly. So if it was me and if I was one of these workers that was being treated unfairly, I would just go get a different job and I would found my own company and the people I would hire would be my my fellow picketers. Because if I worked in that industry, it said this guy was like a third generation iron worker. Sometimes it's great to have families that have a type of industry that is in their in their family bloodline so to speak, but at the same time sometimes that that makes it very narrow minded and they kind of get on their soapbox and they say I'm a third generation this I'm a third generation that this is what we do this is my family's um business or or my family's occupation get over yourself it doesn't matter how many generations worked in that particular type of industry it's a job like i think sometimes people they make a job more important than living a better life they 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 have this kind of clan mentality well this is what my father did this is what my grandfather did this is what my great grandfather did well guess what the grandson he's looking at you know what did his father do what did his grandfather do you know like you're you're clinging on to generational favoritism but it obviously isn't working for you so if it's not working for you change it up go get a different job maybe move to a different city i see from this picture that it looks really cold there cuz there's a lot of snow cuz the article says as winter hits iron workers escalate key eerie labor fight well why are you standing out in the cold when you could have your own business and have a nice fire you know you know have a a crackling fireplace you know have a cup of hot cocoa like think about that why are you throwing a hissy fit when when you can have a better job, a better career and you can make more money. Like basically you're clinging on to an old way of life. Stop clinging on to the past and go to the future. Use your brain. Really think about and look at it from a, an economy point of view. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I'm trying to give you business advice here. Not union advice, business advice. 
Like, go out and have your own company. Hire who you want. Have the best benefits possible. Do something new. Like, like holding on to the past does not help you in your future endeavors. That's why you're having these problems. I've worked for some really horrible people. I've had some horrible managers. And guess what? Nothing I said or did ever changed them. Even though I stood up for what's right, even though I was correct, it didn't matter. Why? Because I was the underling. I was the, the employee. They were the employer. I was the worker. They were the boss. Well, guess what? If you work for people that don't really care about you, guess what? You're working for someone that doesn't really care about you. So go work for people that actually value your labor. Stop working for people that don't care about you and don't want to pay you more. Like you're basically trying to roll a boulder up a hill or up a mountain and guess what? At some point it's going to roll back on you. Because there's only so much you can do in this type of situation. So you know what? Change the situation. Do do what this employer would never think you would do. All of you quit and walk out and go get different jobs. Let him hire underpaid workers if that's what he wants. Guess what? If this employer, this grandson of this company or whatever, if he hires bad and cheap labor that's unskilled, guess what? His company will eventually fail. And guess what? He will look like an idiot. He'll look like a moron. And that's on him, not on you. But if you're picketing out in front of his home, that's kind of scary. Cuz you're trespassing on private property. Man, I'd call the police. I I would I would do everything I I I could to get someone like that off my property cuz that would be scary to me like from from a woman's point of view to have people in front of my house like that picketing. I wouldn't put up with that. I would do everything I could to utilize the police and the court system to get you off of my land, to to get you off of my property and get you away from my family. Because here's the thing, when you're picketing in front of someone's home, you're making it too personal. It's business. That's what these unions their biggest mistake is making it personal. You have to fight business with business. When you make it personal, you've already lost. You've already lost. So stop losing. Start gaining. Start living your life the way you are supposed to live, which is being successful at what you do. Stop being a beggar. Stop being a whiner. Stop being an instigator. And you may think, well, Leslie, I'm not the instigator. This guy's being a jerk. Doesn't want to pay us. Well, guess what? You're instigating a picket. You're instigating a strike. You're not going to convince a bad person to be good by instigating a fight. All you're doing is just fanning the flame. That's all you're doing with this. And what I mean in regards to what I said earlier in in fighting fire with fire, not literally. You know, you're dealing with an employer that that's defiant. So, you need to make your light shine. So, go into business for yourself. That that's how you fight that. So, basically, you're going to be successful without that person's help. Cuz guess what? They're not helping you be successful. So why are you going to someone I have a word this like why are you bothering with this? I just don't get that. Like I mean I I haven't heard or seen the owner or employer by any means. I'm sure he has his own stuff he has to do with and he might be looking at the bottom line.
because that's what employers do. You know, put yourself in his shoes. Yo, know, what are what assets do they have? What are the accounts payable? Where are the accounts receivable? You know, did they fail an audit recently? Are they doing an internal audit and an external audit within this company? You know, like look at the facts. Like sometimes I say this respectfully to you, it's not all about you. It may have nothing to do with you why this employer is acting like that. You know, for all we know, his dad might have screwed up the finances and now the son who is the grandson Now he's time to fix all the messes that have been going on. I mean, you don't know. You don't know everything. My point is this: sometimes it never hurts to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. Because if you want someone to come to your side of thinking, you have to be nice. You have to be accommodating. Picketing and putting up stupid signs in front of their house is not being accommodating. It's being a jerk. And guess what? I personally don't do business with jerks anymore. Because you know why? Because they're jerks. They're not accommodating. They're not kind, and they're not loyal. And they also tend to have a tendency to have a problem with greed, and arrogance, and pompous, and and having way too much ambition. That doesn't help everybody. So there, there, there's a way to fight your battle. And sometimes the best way to fight your battle is to do something completely unexpected. And in regards to labor unions, what I would do. is I would stop picketing. I would start being nice cuz this owner probably is not expecting you to be nice. Number 2, I would look into forming my own company, my own ironwork company. He won't be expecting that because he thinks you're a stupid union member. He thinks you're going to stand out there in the cold, freezing your buns off, and he thinks you're going to stay out there and just whine all day. Be smart. Don't be like some dumb stupid little kid that just cries about everything. Like grow up, put your big boy pants on and be smart. Look at it from a business point of view because if you want things to go well with your job, you need to look at it from a business point of view. That's just how it happens. Because if you're always playing the victim card, guess what? You're always going to be the victim. Why be the victim when you can be the owner? That's what I say. Go, go ha- have your own company and be in direct competition with this guy. You know what? If you if you have a bank account with a with a bank that you've been doing business with for years, go talk to them and see if if you can get a loan to start a business. Reach out to LegalZoom. They are a great company. I've reached out to them for a couple of things like like if you can't afford a A swanky attorney? Don't worry about. It. Contact LegalZoom. They will help you. They have all these different legal fees, all these different ways of helping you in legal matters for a fraction of the price. And also it puts you in charge. That's what I would do. Like really do your research. I say go for it. Go for it. Show this guy up. but you need to do it in a cool, calm, professional manner, in a cooth manner and do it from a business point of view, not a wimpy, whiny, I'm going on strike kind of thing. I understand somebody's parents died. I get that and that you had to go out to California. I understand that. I I understand that they're being horrible to you about COVID-19. I understand that. I understand they're being horrible to you about vacation pay, sick leave if your child is sick. I get that. 
But here's the thing. When you have an enemy that doesn't have a heart, it's very uh, pr- pretty much impossible to to convince them to think with their heart when they don't have one. So if they're going to be a cold business person, treat it like business. It may feel weird at first because that's what happened to me. I had to be kind of this cold female business owner. Is what it had to be. Cuz normally I'm warm, I'm inviting, I love to laugh. But here's the thing, I've learned that when I'm warm and down to earth that it it gives people the impression I'm not very smart. It gives the impression that I'm not business like. It gives the impression that I'm ignorant and stupid and that that you can pull one over on me. Be business professional, not country bumpkin. And I say that respectfully because I've been there. I've been treated like dirt. I've been treated like a moron. And if anything, when someone treats me like I'm an idiot, they are about to figure out real quick in a legal way, I am not an idiot, and I am not a country bumpkin. And then their mouth drops when I totally cream them legally. That's the thing. If someone wants to treat you like you're an ignorant, stupid person, that's on them, not on you. And here's the thing: I've learned that when someone thinks you're stupid, it's going to be even more shocking when you defeat them. Because they're gonna be like, "Whoa, this country hick defeated me. They won. Like they will just be totally taken aback." So use that to your advantage. If someone thinks you're stupid and ignorant and all that stuff, who cares? Learn to look at it from a business point of view because you can't change someone's point of view. You can't change their opinion. They have to be willing to change their opinion. They have to be willing to change their own mind. They have to change th- their heart. You know, like it makes me think of the Grinch that stole Christmas. Basically, union workers that are striking, you're dealing with sometimes you might be dealing with employers who either don't have a heart or their heart is two sizes too small. Well, guess what? You need to treat this situation like Whoville. The Grinch did not get a larger heart because the Who's called him out on his bad behavior. They were kind to him, and he was shocked at their happiness. He's like, "What do these people have anything to be happy about? I stole their stockings. I stole their gifts. I stole their hams. I stole their desserts. I stole all the candy canes from the little kids. How can they be happy?" When you handle things, I know you're probably thinking why use the Grinch as an example, but it's a perfect example. The really the only way you can bring someone over to your way of thinking is with acts of kindness. And the Grinch that stole Christmas, the original one with Boris Karloff being the voice of the Grinch, that's the best version of it, but that's truly the best way to win over someone who either A doesn't have a heart or maybe their heart is two sizes too small. because you don't know where that person's coming from like you don't know like this grinch that you're having to deal with you don't know his backstory you know maybe someone in his family's fighting cancer that could be a possibility maybe they're maybe they're on the verge of bankruptcy and and they themselves are just trying to stay afloat see that's what i mean when i say it's not all about you look at it from a business point of view And then you won't have all this emotional garbage 
all this emotional turmoil that that's going along with your situation. Just treat it like business and you will get a lot further a lot quicker. Otherwise, if you don't, you're going to be viewed as a country bumpkin, a stupid ignorant country bumpkin. And guess what? Your wages are going to be that 0.05 cent raise, which is nothing. That's true, it is a nothing. You know, the whiny kid is not really seen as a smart kid. The smart kid is the one that shuts his trap, doesn't whine, and is confident in everything that he does. When you're whining and complaining, you're not confident. You look weak, you look stupid. I'm not trying to offend you, I'm just saying it like it is. If you want to go places, you need to be willing to take a different vehicle. Cuz the vehicle, that's an analogy, the vehicle that you're currently using to get your way isn't working. Cuz right now you're basically using a crappy Honda to try and get the job done when you really need a Lexus or a Mercedes. Does that make sense? And I know my cars because I used to work at a car dealership in the accounting department and in sales. I've actually worked the front of the house and um sales and also worked in warranties and I worked um in the accounting department as well. So realize analogy wise what kind of vehicle you're driving in this situation to try and get what you want and be realistic a honda is nothing compared to a lexus or a mercedes but that's what you look like you look like a crappy worn out worn down honda to this employer with your picketing and your signs i think there was one that says santa knows who's naughty and nice I mean what are we 5 years old are we in grade school that is something an elementary school teacher would say And guess what that doesn't look good to adults that may work on kids it doesn't work on grown adults So if you're dealing with an adult situation treat it with treat it in a adult manner Cuz otherwise you're still going to be a loser You may you know maybe the employer might give in to you a little bit but It's not as much as you could get if you treat it like business. Stop being a whiner and be a winner. That's what I'm saying. Sounds harsh, but if I can give you some advice and my personal opinion on this, even though I'm not a union person, I'm going to say it again. Stop being a whiner. Be a winner. And that starts with your behavior. It starts with your words. and also starts with how you carry yourself. Carry yourself as if you've already won. What have you got to lose? Nothing. But that doesn't mean being a bully. That doesn't mean picketing. That doesn't mean striking. Cuz where is it getting you? Pretty much nowhere. You're basically not really able to pay your bills. And do you really think the electric company is going to have pity on you? No, you you are a customer and you're not paying your bills. So realize that you might be just shooting yourself in the foot here. And here's another thing. Let's say you want a $2 raise or a $5 raise. I say screw that. Excuse my language. Look for jobs where you make $10 an hour more. So if you're currently making $14 an hour, apply to jobs where you would be making $24 an hour. Then you wouldn't have to pick it. You wouldn't be out there in the freezing cold. 
Like, use your brain. You have a brain. God gave you a brain. Whether you believe in God or not, he gave you a brain. Use it. Grow up and use your brain. Stop playing the, oh, with, you know, this is my generation. We've been in this for three generations. Guess what? I guess you've been, you know, for three generations you've been being stupid. And for three generations you could have been doing something different with your life. You could have been more successful. Because I look at it this way. Three generations of workers have been working for the same company in the same field, but yet you're not really making more money. You're still the employee. You're not the owner. <laughs> that, that's not success. That tells me you've settled for less than God's best. That's how I look at it. It may sound harsh, but that's just from a business point of view. So seriously, suck it up. Be an adult. Get your, get your shots. Get vaccinated. Find a better job. And you'll be happier. Like the more money you make, guess what? The happier you will be. But you have to be a leap taker. You have to take leaps. You have to take chances. If you don't take chances, why, why should anybody take a chance on you? That's not meant to be harsh. It's just the reality of life. Like, take a chance. Do something new. Do something that, that you never thought you would do. As long as it's legal and moral and on the up and up, you're good to go because those are my two rules. Everything I say and do has to be legal and moral because it guards and protects you as well. But it, that's how you should want to live your life. So I'll go ahead and end this podcast because we're going over a little over an hour here. But anyway, um, that is it for this podcast. And let me see what the next one is going to be. And their website is not nice. Wow, their website, it doesn't want you to leave it. That's very shady. I don't like that. Ooh, you know, like when you, when you hit the go back button and it keeps trying to take you back to their home? Yeah, that's, that's concerning. I don't like that. That's very shady. Okay, so the next one is going to be Transport Workers Union of America. This one sounds familiar, but their emblem looks different. So I'll double check and make sure we haven't already done this one. But that will be the next one. It was founded in 1934. And this might be one of those things where they merged with someone else. I'm not really sure. But we will take a look at that for our next one. So until next time, I pray that you're happy, healthy, and whole. And if you're a union worker and you're throwing a hissy fit and you're picketing, you know what I think about that. Get a, get a better job. Move. Do something. Do something better with your life. Stop whining and be a winner. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Smallest steps.
Thank you.